Okay. So I need you to imagine with me that it's three o'clock in the afternoon, and in just one hour, my small group is going to descend on my home. Now, every member of my family has a specific role to play uh, in getting us ready. For me, I'm going to make the coffee. Coffee's pretty important, and we're going to I have a broom in the other hand, so I'm sweeping the floors. Uh, Nate, I'm, I'm yelling up to Nate, my eldest son, and I'm saying, Nathaniel, uh, please get your room clean, and if you could vacuum the stairs, that would be great. Okay, Dad, so then I get him going, and my wife is making the main dish, and she's getting the kitchen all cleared up, and then I'm running to the garage, because I got to get to the garage to get the folding table and the folding chairs. I'd almost forgotten about that. I got to get that out, but on my way there, I realized that my five-year-old son, Caleb, had taken this moment to unpack all of his Legos in the living room. Daddy, look. And I'm like, I get it, but look, and these are Legos, they're very important, but can you pack them up, put them in your room? It's, you know, of course he's going to get it done. I trust that, right? And so I, I run out to the garage because I remember I needed to get the whiteboard as well. I got to get the whiteboard so we could take notes on what we're learning as a small group. Come on, somebody. And so I, I come back out of the garage to find that Caleb, instead of cleaning his Legos, had gone into the guest bathroom and came out of the best guest bathroom with the toilet bowl brush waving it over his head like a sword and exclaiming to everybody, I'm cleaning the bathroom. Well, I trust that to be true. And because I don't have any more time left, I just move on. Move on to the pile of clothes on the dining room table. I've told you about this before, right? So I take the dining room clothes and I throw them into our bedroom. You guys don't ever do that. And I shut the door. No tour of the bedroom tonight. So... I come out just in time to see my 18-month-old, Olivia, had chosen to fill up her diaper, right? Yeah, I don't know. I told you everyone had a part to play, right? And so Christy, you know, she, she runs up to, uh, upstairs, changes the diaper, and, you know, and brings it down. I've just enough time to straighten that sign next to the door. You guys have them, the sign that says peace, you know? <laughs> so... Straighten that up and then ding dong, I open the door and the kids and the adults come pouring in and it's just, it's just crazy. It's crazy. In fact, the kids outnumber the adults three to one and we found ourselves most of the night just kind of trying to keep everyone right here, just, just right here, you know, just don't burn down the house. But it's a little bit of the way it is. It was, it's crazy. We need Jesus and we need him desperately. And you could see the look on our faces. Please, God, give us a little bit of Jesus. You know, it's funny though. The last person leaves the house. And Christy and I, we come together as we do on those nights, and we share what we learned from that night. You know, the conversations that we had with all of our friends, and we recount all of the prayer requests that were shared that night, some of them with tears, real tears, and, uh, and then reviewed the lessons that God showed us out of Scripture together. And inevitably, we'll look at each other and we'll say, man, that was wild, but worth it, but worth it. And it hit me the other day that the things that God calls us to are rarely convenient. The way that he calls us to live our lives, it's not convenient. And the assignments that he puts on our families, it's not convenient. None of it is convenient. And several weeks ago, I prayed over there. I was praying during pre-service prayer, and I felt like the Lord had impressed on my heart this phrase, dig in. And I thought it was for me, but as I began to pray and seek the Lord, I thought maybe it would have larger context for us as a church family. The idea that 
We should dig in, right? We really shouldn't be among those that lose hope or lose their faith. Because these are encouraging words for the church in a time when the struggle can be quite real. Many of our marriages are in danger. We have very real fears over the identities and the choices of our kids and and our teenagers. Parents are wondering, how can I be a godless, how can I be a God-filled parent or a God-filled couple in a godless culture? Or maybe you're just sitting here today and you're like, man, I never imagined that sin would take me so far away from God and so far away from my family. Well, I know my assignment today. My assignment today is to challenge you to persevere. To persevere. To not give up on the vision to position your family under God's design. Don't give up. You know, in the series, we've talked about lordship. We have the altar here. This is the altered family series, and we're at the the end of it. And so we've learned a little bit about what it looks like for us to give our lives at the altar, to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. The second week, we learned what it was like to put our marriages on the altar. You know, it started that way, didn't it? It's very difficult to keep it that way, but our marriage is on the altar, right? And then then we, uh, we learned last week what it's like to put our children on the altar. I want to make sure this one stays on here. Sometimes it likes to come off children on the altar. But today I want to challenge you to put your picture of the perfect family on the altar. Your picture of uh, of home sweet home. What is that? That picture of home sweet home. And why would I ask you to put that on the altar? Because inevitably it will not take long in life for your expectations to be shattered, for your faith to fade, and for feelings of romance to flame out. And what do you do then? What do you do when that begins to happen? I just want to start with a question today, maybe. And the question is this, where are the families that will persevere for the sake of the cross? Where are the families that will persevere for the sake of the cross? There's a lot at stake. So today we should get wisdom from the book of Acts. We're going to look at the families, the early families of the church. Families that persevered all all the time. They were being pulled out of their homes. They were being pulled out of their homes. Put into jail, put into prison, separated from one another, and yet they still persevered. They still persevered in their faith. And so we're going to learn from them today. And we're going to pick up today in our main text, right after the Apostle Peter had finished preaching the Sermon of a Lifetime. I mean, it was a biggie. The Holy Spirit had just been poured out on all of those that were gathered in the upper room. 120, the scriptures teach us. And the Holy Spirit could not be contained. That upper room could not contain him. They, they spilled out into the streets. The Apostle Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those that had gathered in Jerusalem that day. And the people were so curious that they began to press in to listen to what he had to share. And so today, let us do the same. 
Today, let's all lean in a little bit to what the Apostle Peter has to say in Acts chapter 2, in verse 40 through 42. So, he says, And with many other words, he testified, he being Peter, and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those that gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they what? What did they do? They continued, right? Do you guys have the scripture up there? All right, so make sure you're still with me. They continued what? Steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and everybody say it. What else? And in prayers. That's right. And this is God's word. And what I love is that here you got a picture of 3,000. You got husbands in there. You got wives, and you got children. They were added to the church daily, and... I like that phrase in scripture that says they continued steadfastly because it leads us to believe that they persevered against opposition. They persevered at a time when they had great opposition. And so today I want to offer to you that an altered family is really a family that perseveres. An altered family perseveres. The families of Acts chapter 2, they model for us today of what it means to persevere in our convictions of what it means to persevere in communion with the Lord and what it means to persevere in community with one another. But first, let's look at what it means to persevere in conviction because they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what the word teaches us. Now, this was a divisive doctrine where Jesus was Lord and he is at the center of it. He was the Messiah that was to come. So this was very divisive. This was not a suggestion. This was not an opinion that they held. No, this was a firm conviction. In the early 2000s, there was a book that came out by Josh, uh, Josh McDowell. And it was called uh, Beyond Belief to Conviction. And it advocated that if you could get a student, it became like a manual for student ministry pastors, but it advocated that if you could get a student to go from thinking something in their heads to changing the way they live on a daily basis, then you have a resulting conviction. But until you could get that idea or that opinion from their head and their heart into an action that showed change, then all you really had was an opinion. It's a little bit like my friend who was trying to sell his car just down the street from me. I passed by his house every day on my way to work And one day I passed by and I noticed he had his car for sale and it read $7,000. Firm. He wrote the word firm underneath that amount. And it's like, whoa, $7,000. He's going for it. It, it, He's going to sell that thing. So the next week I was really surprised to drive by and find that he had changed the amount to the price of the vehicle to $6,000. But the word firm, it was still there. Yet again, I drove by two weeks later and he changed the price to $5,500. And the word firm, still written. So, I wonder, he had a very unique idea of what the word firm really meant, did he not? Let me ask you this. In truth, the value of the seller's vehicle and his conviction, it was really determined by other people's value, right? 
It was really determined about by what other people saw in his vehicle. But, but was he ever really truly convicted? You know, our culture tends to operate this way, doesn't it? Sliding scale of, a, of opinions versus convictions. We don't have to look far to somebody who tells us what we want to hear, right? We've all got that small nucleus of people in our lives that tell us what we need to hear. When we're tempted to move off of our convictions, they're the ones that say no. They're the ones that say stand firm in what you believe in. But all of us know that if we move just a couple of people outside of that circle, we will be able to find somebody who could talk us off of our convictions. Certainly God did not intend for you to act that way. Or certainly he didn't mean for you to give up that. That's ridiculous. Opinion versus conviction. But here's the reality. God designed his convictions to help you avoid confusion. His convictions help you to avoid confusion. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses provides a framework for how we can strengthen and come alongside God's framework of convictions for our lives. He, He says, and we should read it together, we really should, If you have your Bibles, I hope you're going to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9 together. You should always bring your Bible to church. We rely too much on the screens. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6 through 9. And these words which I command you today shall be in your what? Yeah, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's a curious thing when you read that passage of scripture, it becomes pretty clear to me that Moses was trying to teach people that you can reinforce and strengthen your convictions in God by what you say and by what you see. By what you say and by what you see. See, I'm a, I'm a father of kids. I, I got three kids. I'm about to add a fourth. And yeah, you guys it missed it. Wait, are you guys asleep this morning? I'm adding a fourth. Come on, somebody. It's weak. Weak. First service was so much better. You guys are weak. It's asleep. Talking about persevering and you guys are asleep. You can't, can you tarry with me one hour? One hour. So I'm a, I'm a dad, so the things I say are really important, right? Really super important. The things I say to my children, the things I say to my wife, they're all very important. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't say. You guys ever have that experience? Maybe I say things to my kids I don't mean. Maybe I say things to my wife I don't mean. And I certainly have to come back behind to reinforce my conviction. Baby, I'm really sorry I said this. Baby, I'm really sorry I did this. And we have to iron it out. And a lot of times we'll, we'll have to iron it out in front of our children so that they can see that we are convinced in our love for one another and that we're going to make things right in front of them, right? Okay? And so sometimes, though, I say things to my kids I don't mean, and I got to make it right with them also. But it's also... Like taking advantage of the moments you have to say things that are right. (laughs) 
So the time around the dinner table is really important. And here's the deal. I know how ridiculously crazy it is at the dinner table. You know, I've got all those children, right, uh, around the dinner table. And I got some that are snorting spaghetti up their nose. And I got kids that are screaming. And, you, and I, I love these preachers who, who encourage you, you know, you really should value the dinner table, you know, and you really should, you know, open up your Bibles and discourse, you know. I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you been here? before? Have you forgotten what this is like? And so we're talking about Avengers, right? We're talking about Star Wars and Avengers, but in that, we are also looking for opportunities to share conviction, conviction, to share the things that we believe in, the things that are important to us. We're going to talk about it. When we're driving from Target to Costco, we're going to talk about it. We're walking on the trails together as a family. We're going to talk about it. Because what you say reinforces your convictions. But also what you see. How many of you know what you see is important? The Bible, obviously you've got to go through great lengths to see, you know, what you see is important. Bind them on your hands, your arms, put them as frontlets before your eyes. And, you know, all this, this great lengths you go for, write them on the doorposts of your house. And, and we don't have to necessarily do all that today because scripture teaches us that now his commands are written on our heart. So you don't see us lugging around the Ten Commandments, though for some of us, that would be beneficial. And I'll include myself in that, come on. Be beneficial. But one thing my, my, my wife likes to do to help change what we see, to help change what we see, is she buys these scripture prints for us, and it's not a religious thing. It, it's a reflection of who we are as a family, and I love this thing. It reminds me of who I am. And, and so she bought me this one. It was for our family for Christmas, but she bought, but it's for me and my house will serve the Lord. And it's for me and my, how many of you know that's a conviction that we have? We are going to be a family that serves the Lord. And so it's, it's a big deal. And so we have it, we put it next to the light switch, you know, we see it every time. Every time we look at him, reminded, you know, as much as I want to hate that coworker, as much as I want to be upset at my boss sometimes, not John, I'm talking <laughs> figuratively with you guys. You know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. She gave me another one recently for Christmas, and I love it. I love this one. It's so manly. It's really cool. Be strong and courageous, right? Be strong and courageous. How many of you guys out there could be reminded about this on a daily basis, right? How many of you need that reminder in your life? None of you, just, just me, be strong and courageous. How many of you know life can be tough, and standing on principle and standing on convictions can be, can be difficult. And so for me, I have this in my, where I study at home. And so when I look up from my desk, I see it. And it reminds me, come on, Matt. Yeah, you be strong. You be courageous. So what you say and what you see are important. Our faith is on display everywhere. It spills out of our home and into my office and I see it when I leave for the day. I see it when I come home at night. And before I lay down in bed, I'm I'm faced with my convictions everywhere I go because I I realize how important what I see is. So let me ask you, what do you see? What are you seeing? What are you putting in front of your eyes? Because what you put in front of your eyes can either lead you closer to the Lord and your convictions in God, or it could be leading you farther away. Oswald Chambers a giant in history, Christian history, he writes, when the heart sees what God wants, 
It must be willing to spend and to be spent for that cause alone. So what you see is tied to your convictions. So, but the reality is this. If you, what you see and what you say never translates into changing how you act, then you're, you're not really much different than my friend down the street who is trying to convince the world of how firm he was in trying to sell his car. Right? I don't know. All right, okay. So, we got to persevere in our convictions. We also have to persevere in communion. It says that they continued steadfastly in their prayers. So the early Christians, they had a persevering communion with the Lord. And, and this was a new church. So many of them had encountered God for the first time. Heard about Jesus for the first time. Many of them, new converts, had knowing just for the first time the love, the deep love of Jesus Christ that drove him to the cross for them. And it took them by surprise the sermon, the scripture, it lays out that they were cut to the heart. It means that they were just flat out convicted. Jesus had grabbed a hold of their lives and they felt maybe for the first time the love of God. It's not unlike how Paul approached the Ephesian church when he says, look, my prayer is that all of you would grab a hold of the love of God. That the love of God would take root in your heart and you would know through faith the love of God. The length and the depth and the height of his love. I wonder today, have you felt the love of God before? Have you ever felt the love of God? You know, the early church, they went from revelation to persecution rather quickly. Revelation of the knowledge of God's love to being persecuted for it the very next day. What I want you to see is that they began to cry out to God in crisis. They cried out to God in crisis. I'll never forget a couple of years ago, leaning back into one of my own stories of crisis. Uh, the church here was going through an amazing season of growth. We, in the one year, God added to the church a thousand, a thousand people to the church in one year. And so we're celebrating like crazy. Thank you, Jesus. For adding to your church, we celebrate all the salvations and all of the baptisms and everything that come with it. But, but the result of that was that we had to wrestle behind the scenes with new structures, new framework, new systems that would support all the new people. And so this impacted everybody differently. This impacted all of our leaders differently. And I know Pastor John has shared some of his own struggles right here from the stage. But for me, it began to impact me in my physical, my physical body in a very strange way. I had never had this happen to me before. And I never shared this. I just shared this with my, well, not with my wife, just parts of this. But I began to develop pains in my chest shallowness. Of, I, couldn't de I couldn't breathe deep and it, was, it would come on me and I couldn't breathe. And then it created a shortness of breath and it created all this stuff. I feel like the world was kind of coming in around me and uh, I'd have to escape. And so I went to the doctor and I said, man, I, I've never experienced this before. Am I having a heart attack? And the doctor checked me out, hooked me up, all the tubes, all kind of stuff. And he said, no, you're not having a heart attack. Your heart's fine. Your heart's good. Tell me about work. 
<laughs> Tell me about work. So I began to share with him. I was like, oh, man, you know, God's moving, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, man, you guys are burning it. And it's probably impacting you. Have you ever heard of like anxiety or panic attacks? Sometimes that can come on during heavier seasons uh, of ministry. And so I'd never heard of that before. But I walked away from the office thinking, oh, this will pass. But for the period of three or four months, I began to battle intensely with this issue to the point where I, I, let, I had to leave restaurants. My wife and my family, I had to leave them at the table. I had to go out into uh, walk outside for 15, 20 minutes. I'd come back and they were wrapping up their meal. Uh, I'd be in the car with my wife and I'd ask her to pull over immediately because I didn't feel well and I'd have to walk around outside for 15 to 20 minutes because I just, I, I couldn't breathe and the, the, the heart just started pounding and, and I, the pain in my chest and, and it really, it really did a number on me until one day I was in a staff meeting and it happened again. And I had to leave the staff meeting and turn it over to somebody else. And I, I came out of the, the staff meeting and I wandered into the sanctuary here, just desperate for help. And I came and I saw the cross in the corner and I went over to the cross and I knelt down at the cross and in a rather dignified fashion for the first 30 seconds. And then my posture began to change because desperation began to grow in my heart, you see. And instead of a dignified kneeling down before the cross, I found myself arms wrapped around the base of the cross and I was crying and sobbing like a little kid. Sobbing like I had never sobbed before. And I was praying, I was like, God, focus my heart. Help me to see clearly through confusion. What are you doing in my life? What are you doing in our church? What are you doing in our family? What is what's going on? How many see clearly? Meet me here. And he did. In the presence of God, I felt him wrap his arms around me. And I moved from just, I couldn't, I didn't even know what I was saying, but all I could say was, it's good to be here. 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 And I was just sobbing and my arms were wrapped around at the base of the cross and it had nothing to do with me being in this church. It had nothing to do with me being in the city of San Antonio. But what I was saying is, is it's good to be here at the base of the cross because at the base of the cross, I learn about the beating and about the torture and about the trial that my own Lord suffered when he was marched to the cross that day. But it isn't the beatings that I remember only because when I consider the work of the cross, I cannot get away from the resurrection that follows. And it was in that resurrection that I found life and hope for myself in that moment. And I don't know, I just want to ask you this morning, do you need hope? Do you need hope? Do you have a loved one that's battling sickness? Do you have a prodigal who's run away from home? real fears about the future. Do you need hope this morning? The early church didn't run away from God when they were being persecuted, but they ran into his arms and it formed a deep and abiding communion with the Lord. Do you have a communion with the Lord? But not only did they persevere in their convictions, in their communion, but they also persevered in community it says they continued steadfastly in the fellowship and the, the breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread was representative of their eating meals together, right? They're going to they're learn one another. They're going to be committed to one another. And it never ceases to amaze me about the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us into community with one another despite our differences. We really are a crazy looking people. 
We're all different and we all have different stories, but yet God puts us together into community. And we see this time and time again in the book of Acts, but one story in particular in Acts chapter 16, you see Paul and Silas, they had just finished preaching the word of God and they're preaching the word of God, they get beaten for it and they get sent to prison. And Acts chapter 16 tells us the story of a prison guard and prisoners. They're in the jail and they're praising the Lord, Paul and Silas, and singing well into the night. And then an angel of the Lord comes, opens up the prison doors and looses them from their chains. They're set free. So why in the world did they stay? (laughs) I I never understood that. If the doors are open and the chains are loose, then why in the world are you still there? But thank God they were. Thank God the minute that they were set free from their trial or their situation, they didn't immediately seek that way out. They didn't throw off that prison cell and run out the door. Would you have done that? I I probably would have done that. This is unfair. Beaten. You know, I'm in this cell and my coworkers don't know what I go through. My boss doesn't understand me and... Nobody really understands what I'm going through. And and here I'm in this prison cell. I shouldn't be in this prison cell. And the minute I get that, boom, I'm out of there, right? But they discerned a, a bigger purpose in play. And we know the jailer, he attempted to take his life because he woke up from sleep, realized, man, I fell asleep on job. I'm Paul said, hey, look, we're all still here. We're all still here. And so he began to tell him about Jesus. And scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 16 that the jailer gave his heart to the Lord. And not only did he give his heart to the Lord, but his whole family gave his heart to the Lord. The scripture tells us it's so crazy that that jailer invited them into his house. And he fed them a meal. And he washed their wounds. What I'm trying to tell you is This is a really strange community, isn't it? Isn't it a strange community that God would put prison guard and prisoner together for his glory and for the salvation of an entire house? And I want you to see is it's a little bit beyond ironic. It has to be divine. It has to be divine. Prison guard wiping the wounds. And now the apostles find themselves the guest of honor. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can do this. And I wonder, if I was Paul and Silas, would I have willingly put myself in the prison cell? Rarely would we, as our families, choose trial. Rarely would we choose circumstance that was not favorable, that was not fun, that was not exciting. Rarely would we choose it on our own. But yet in the middle of that, we can understand that God has a bigger purpose at play. And I know it's hard to say. It's a difficult thing to say. But the reality is that when we are in the middle of our situation, our families can still be positioned in that moment by the Holy Spirit to use the worst of our circumstance to minister to those around us. And what I want you to see is that God is putting us into community with one another. God is putting you into community with those around you, those in your workplace, 
and those in your life, he really is putting you into community. So I want to challenge you this morning. Are you willing to persevere in your convictions in communion with the Lord and in community with others? You know, (laughs) 3,000, 3,000 men, women, husbands, wives, children committed their hearts to the Lord in that day. And God used them to pave a way for his purpose to be fulfilled. And so I wonder today, what might he do through you if you are faithful to persevere? Because an altered family is a family that perseveres. Amen? Amen.